welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad that you have come along. We have a very interesting, helpful show for you today. Not the type of show that I typically do, but I think it's something particularly those of you who are in leadership positions with institutions will find incredibly helpful and something we all need to think about. Okay, but before I do, I want you to know that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And in addition to our ATS, Association of Theological Schools accreditation, we have just been accredited by the Association of Biblical Higher Education, and we're excited to have that. That means our undergraduate program is now accredited as well. So we have bachelor's, master's, a variety of master's degrees, and a doctor of ministry degree. And we would love for you to think about coming and joining us, being a part of various things that happen here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Also, I'm thankful to WPO Development for being a sponsor of this podcast. Their CEO, Keith Waters, says if you don't have a plan, any path will get you there. And he does that through a variety of programs, including capital campaigns, feasibility studies, and mission planning studies. He's done successful capital campaigns for more than 250 organizations, churches, schools, nonprofits, all around the country. So I encourage you to check them out at wpodevelopment.com. Actually, you Google WPO Development or you go to Keith Waters at WPODevelopment.org. All right. Well, I am so glad to welcome to the podcast my friend, Ethan Kelly. Ethan, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here, Andy. It's an honor. Well, Ethan serves here at Wesley Biblical Seminary as a vice president for business... Now... uh, Business affairs, business yes. services. Business okay, affairs, make sure I have yeah. that right. Okay, now, now tell us a little about yourself. Like, how how do you get into a role like this? Like, what is it in your life that led you to be right. in this position? Oh, that's a great question. You know, it's it, the the role here at WBS is rather broad. Uh, so I occupy the CFO seat. I right, also right. serve as head of HR and general counsel for the school, and so I I have I wear a lot of hats here in the building and. And I also serve as CEO of Providence Capital Management, my okay. investment advisory firm, and I work with institutions on endowment and foundation management and high net worth individuals. Gotcha. And but it's been a to answer your question though, it's it's been a long and winding road because your your path to this spot isn't exactly like predictable. Yes, it's it's, it's not predictable. So. Like you, I went to Asbury. Right. Um, I was I was a, a few years after you. At, at <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I studied history, political science, and economics at Asbury. Okay. And loved it. And but you know, I always wanted to go into investing and financial management. Okay, interesting. Uh, you know, at least once I started taking economics classes at Asbury, I, okay. I realized this is something I want to do. You know, did a summer internship with a local investment firm. Really fell in love with it, but I'm from a family of attorneys. You know, both right, my parents sure, are sure. attorneys, and so I always grew up wanting to go. Both to law your parents school. are attorneys. Yeah, this is unique. And yes. you're you're homeschooled, right? Yes, so homeschooled by two two attorneys. Yes. Okay. Yes. This is yes. all right. So, anyways, keep yeah. that in mind. But yet, you have this interest in investments and invest yes. interest in the economy and history and all these type of things. Yes. These are. Now, and of course, let me just back up. You have like some special, and many people in my audience would be aware of the Asbury University history faculty. They'll kind of, and you were yes. there with some of the the lions of that department. Yes. Why don't you go ahead and give them a, a shout out there? <laughs> yes. who, who who meant like were meaningful to you? Yes, uh, I was I was there with the big three. You know, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Span, Dr. Reynolds, and Dr. McKinley. There you go. And love all three. Keep in touch with them. And yes. Uh, just had classes with all of them, and it was great, fantastic. I, I maintain 
a written correspondence with Dr. McKinley. Wow. And even and, his, so I'm guessing you've gotten some of his uh, very stylized quill pen. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. I have a stack of those mm -hmm. that I have like kept because they're so yep. special to me that I got from him. I've, I've got a, yes, a stack of his letters. And, and, you know, I mean, our correspondence goes all the way back to, you know, my senior year, wrapping up senior year of college at Asbury. Wow. He was retiring and let me have the pick of his library. And oh so my I goodness. Yes. Yeah, so I got to pick some books from his library, uh, you know, because we were, you know, I was a, a student of his and, a, you know, one of my majors was history. And, and so he just, you know, needed to downsize his library. And so I wrote him a thank you note for yeah, sure. letting me, you know, pick from his library. And, he wrote a response to the thank you note, <laughs> and, and we've been writing ever since. So, oh yes. wow! And I don't mean to detract. No, so, no, it's so interesting. To, like yes. these are people who help form you, and these are yes. people who think broadly. And I think of uh, Doctor. I don't know Doctor Span as well. I know his family, obviously connected yes. to WBS. But um, these friend. are think of people who think broadly yes. about the world and care about economics, yep. care about politics, yep. all these things. You're kind of interested in that, and I think that kind of uh, worldview yep. training was a yes. part of what launches you to be at a place like WBS? Absolutely. You know, because when I was at Asbury, I, I realized, I mean, I've always been interested in history. Okay. But I realized that, you know, I wanted to learn how the world worked and history was a big part of that. But so was economics. Yeah, So sure. was political science. And, and so I wound up kind of developing, you know, I, I tried to craft for myself kind of this well-rounded curriculum, okay. you know, if you will. And, and, you know, credit to Asbury, the history major was small enough that you could add other majors and minors to sure. it. So you weren't limited to just one major. And so I was able to double major in history and political science and then double minor in business and economics. Ah, okay. And, okay. you know, took calculus as well as an elective and, you know, statistics and all that. And it was just a very well-rounded education I got at Asbury. And, you know, they're, they're fantastic at that. And so, yeah. and, and I was privileged to get to have Dr. Spann and McKinley and Reynolds, you know, teaching me. And of course, you know, Dr. Clements was over the political science. Oh, right, sure, He's sure. He's still there. You know, even though I didn't major in literature or English, I had multiple classes with Dr. Dan Strait, which were fantastic. Oh, right, yeah. And, and um, you know, and of course, a number of economics classes as well and accounting classes. Uh, Prof. Walsh is the accounting professor at Asbury. She's still there. And right. Fantastic accounting professor. Uh, accounting class is actually where I got to know my wife. Oh, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, okay. that's where I met her. So, anyhow, not to not to go uh, too all, far off the path on but Asbury this, memories. But this set you up. But yes, it this set, set you me, up yes. for like the way you think about the world. Yes, and then and you go on to law school. Yes, you, Mississippi College. Is that right? Yes, and, MC Law. Yeah. And so all of this, though, like maybe mm -hmm. not practicing law, but thinking of investments all along the way. Yep. And yep. And and I did practice law for a little bit. Okay. Um, well. Out of law school, I went straight into investment management. Okay, uh, okay. A, a local firm hired me, took me on. I was with them for several years. But then I decided that I wanted to start my own firm. Uh, so I started my own firm in 2019, towards the end of, end of 2018, yeah. beginning of 2019. Transitioned out of the old firm and started practicing law you know, with my parents to oh, pay the bills while I set up my own investment advisory firm. Okay. And at the same time, I also decided I needed more education. Okay. Uh, that, you know, I had a great foundation from Asbury. And then I added to that with my law degree, which, you know, I focused on estate planning and business law and stuff in, in law school. But I felt like I needed a more investment-focused education. And so okay. at that point, I enrolled in Yale School of Management 
and did a online program called the Certified Investment Management Analyst Program. It's the CIMA. Okay. And it's like a CPA, but for investing. So okay. it's a designation program, not a degree program. Uh, and it's partnered with the Investments and Wealth Institute. And so I did that while also, I treated it like a job, honestly. I, I did did my Yale work in the mornings and then went and practiced law in the afternoons. Wow, And, and in the meanwhile, also running my investing business as well. Wow. And working on a consulting basis with my old firm because they still needed me to help out on a few things. So I was wearing a lot of hats and no children at the time. No that kids. Was all going that. But now you yes. have Sophie. So maybe now I have Sophie. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad I did that then. You right, know, right. glad I finished my education before having kids. Uh, but it was still it was very busy time. But it was a very rewarding time, very formative and educational time. And you know, once I you know, finished with the CIMA program at Yale and and had kind of gotten my feet under me setting up the business and everything. And, um, you know, I started, you know, trying to get clients. And and so one prospective client on my list was Wesley Biblical Seminary. There you go. WBS had just gotten a new president. Right, right. You know, an endowed institution. What I wanted to do was help endowed institutions, especially Christian endowed institutions, sure. manage their money better. And so, you know, this is several years ago now, but, you know, I reached out to Matt Ayers and said, hey, let's, you know, let's, let's meet. And uh, we hit it off immediately. And he said, you know, I would, I would love to have you be our endowment manager. What I really need is a CFO. You can, you can keep your investing business, please, you know, keep doing that. But would you be our CFO? And so I said, sure. So, I retired from practicing law. I, I, you know, I say retired. I, you know, <laughs> I, you know at the, the the right, you know, in my early thirties. But you know, <laughs> just couldn't take it. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. Can't take a law. You know, life. I I stopped practicing, and uh, you know, who knows? You know, you never know if you might pick it up again one day. And I, and I still use my law degree um, yes. in, on a general counsel basis for the school. But uh, but yeah, this I, I know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so I um. Yeah, so I stopped practicing law to take on to make room for the CFO role here at WBS, and I've still been been uh, growing and developing my investment advisory business with a focus on institutions, foundations, uh, endowments, and high net worth individuals. Yes, interesting. So it's interesting to think like you have this focus, particularly on mm -hmm. endowments. Yes. So yeah. like what? Like uh, there are people probably listening to this who are part of like small nonprofits, mm -hmm. churches mm -hmm. that are like trying to set things up. And a lot of times, you know, like a pastor, I speak from experience with this, like, you know, somebody will come in and say, I, I want to leave this in my, in my will, but here's how I want it to be. Or I, um, I want to, I want to, you have this money, but I want to leverage it as much mm -hmm. as I can. And my thought is, oh my goodness, I don't really want to think about this. I'm mean, honestly, right, forgive right. me. Yeah, but, no, you're, but you're good. you do. <laughs> you do want to think about And like, yeah. you do want to think about yeah. endowments. So why is it important for us to think about endow endowments? Yes. So it, it is important. And yeah, you know, I know there's the running joke when Jesus comes back, he's going to ask, <laughs> what am I going to do with all this endowment money? Right, uh, right. So sure, it's, it's a good question. Yeah, so obviously you don't want to, make endowments the focus of your ministry. Right. But endowments as a tool for your ministry are incredibly important. You know, to establish a certain sense of longevity with your ministry, to to allow you to be free to do what God puts you here to do. If mm -hmm. if you're a school, then offer scholarships to students so that they can, you know, get out of school with less debt. Or if, you know, if you're a church to 
you know, support missions or support, you know, local charitable activities to help out with your local community, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's there to provide freedom mm-hmm. for the institution to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And, and so as long as an endowment is viewed in that sense of providing freedom to fulfill the original core mission, yeah, sure. it's a, it's a, not only is it a healthy focus, it's a focus that endowed institutions should have mm-hmm. so that they can have that freedom. So that they're not hand to mouth constantly trying to just make it every month yeah. so that they have the freedom to actually focus on what God has given them to do. So you think about it as a tool. Yes. Like the endowment, it's, it's not just me hoarding resources exactly. away from somebody else. It's a tool. And, mm-hmm. and what, what is that? And when, you're, when you have an endowment, it's also doing something for the society. Am, I mean, yeah. I mean like it, it's accomplishing something mm-hmm. in the economy. What mm-hmm. is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I like to look at you know, say for a school, for example, I like to look at it as a three-legged stool. Okay. Okay. You, you want three revenue streams. You want tuition income, you want donation income, and then you want endowment income. You, you want... Sure. And, and so that if one falls short, something, the, the other two help it up, help it along. Sure. And great so, way to think about it. Yeah. yeah so, so in the economy of a school, you know, that's the role it plays is it takes pressure off the fundraising office. It takes pressure off the student recruiting office. And, and again, that allows those offices to focus a little more on what they really, what their true vision is for mm-hmm. the institution and program. And so, and, and of course, you are investing in the broader, you know, national economy. You know, you're, you're actually investing, you know, the, the assets of the school into, you know, the stock and bond markets and, and, and all of that as well. Now, some of us, like in my, my seat, like I, you know, retirement accounts, that kind of thing. Like I, I definitely want to do all that I can mm-hmm. to plan, mm-hmm. but all that I can is different than all that you, than you can, like with your, your experience. Right. And right. It, it, there's a tendency maybe for somebody in, in my seat or who's been in this, the seats that I've been in just to say, well, you just go and go, just go mm. and do some good work and right. I expect to see a nice return. Right. But like, how do we, uh, like from a policy perspective, approach our endowments? Like how, how would somebody who is like the, the CEO or in leadership right. of a church come in, a CEO of a nonprofit or an institution, like, non, like a school come in and give you like a policy directions? That's, that's, that's a great question. And many institutions have what's called an investment policy statement where the CFO or the board or the investment committee of the institution draft a policy on allocation limits and how to, you know, how they want the endowment, broadly speaking, not micromanaging the managers, but just broadly speaking, how do they want it invested and managed? Mm, mm-hmm. And I think uh, the best way to illustrate that is by telling you a story. Okay. So, <laughs> so it's 1940, it's World War II, and right now the Brits are fighting alone. It's, it's them versus the Germans, and you know they have no allies on continental Europe. Right. Uh, the Russians haven't entered the war yet, and of course neither has the United States. However, the Italians decide they're going to invade Greece. And so the Italians invade Greece in 1940. The Greeks actually beat them back. And so, and at the time, Italy is much bigger than right, Greece. Right, sure, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a big win for the Greeks. And the Brits are, of course, thrilled because 
hey, you know, we have an ally on the continent that we can start sending troops to and help to and, mm-hmm, and fight mm-hmm. against the Germans. Well, of course, the Italians are allies with the Germans. They go to the Germans, bring them in to help out. And so now it's Britain and Greece fighting Italy and Germany. And the British are sending supplies to Greece. So here, here's, here's, here's the relevant point. Um, the British are unloading ships in the port of Salonika. They're unloading supplies to reinforce the Greek army and the British troops that are in Greece, preparing to fight the Germans. The Luftwaffe, of course, gets gets word that the British are in the port unloading all their stuff, and so they come to pay a visit. Mm. And, you know, the anti-aircraft fire is fierce, you know, and their ships spread throughout the port. Um, you know, each, each ship, they're not connected to each other, they're each separate from each other. And But the German Air Force comes in and they hit one particular British transport that is in the process of unloading 500 tons of TNT. Oh my goodness. They blow up, they sink, I mean, it's a massive fireball. I mean, it's just massive destruction on the port itself, obviously the ship, and it exploded and took about half a dozen ships down with it. Wow. Those ships before the explosion were all very different from each other. They were all different sizes. Right. You know, they were all floating separately from each other. Yeah. But they were ships. Right. And when that 500 tons of TNT went off, they suddenly became highly correlated assets. <laughs> oh, man, you're sneaky. Yes. And so that can happen in the portfolio as well. Okay. Is you might invest in a bunch of different stocks, but they're stocks. Yeah. And if the financial equivalent of 500 tons of TNT goes off, all those stocks could go to zero or Mm. at least have a significant drawdown. Mm -hmm. You know, 2008 was a great example. Heck, Q1 of 2020 is a great example. The fastest bear market in U.S. history happened in February and March of 2020. Amazing. And it was because of a broad systemic event that happened that affected the entire stock market. And it brought down, it you know, wreaked absolute havoc on investor portfolios. So what what is the solution to that? Then? Well, the solution is to have a variety of asset classes. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be just in stocks, even if the fund you're in has dozens or even hundreds of positions. Yeah. If you're in one asset class and something systemic happens to the market, yeah. then it doesn't matter how many stocks you're holding. You know, you're right. up a creek. And so you want to diversify your investment into non-correlated asset classes Mm. to reduce the overall volatility of the portfolio. Sure, sure. So that's where you get into, okay, we're going to establish allocation limits. You know, we're not going to let a manager put 100% of the portfolio into equities. Sure. You know, we're going to have a certain required threshold for fixed income. You know, for bonds, yeah, uh, you could even work in commodities like gold or oil or something uh, into, or even real estate, publicly traded real estate investment trusts. You can work that into the endowment to reduce the correlation levels, so that again, kind of like a three-legged stool. You know, if one leg get, you know gets weaker or smaller, well, you've got two other to kind of help out. Right. Obviously, you don't want any one leg to go away completely. <laughs> you know, yeah. you'll topple over. But like. You want to have different asset classes built into that endowment. And each investment committee, each institution is a little different in how they, they want those allocation limits to look. Interesting. So when you think about investment committee, a lot of people are needing to find 
people to serve on those committees. Like mm -hmm. board, maybe it's not all board members, board mm -hmm. trustee members, but maybe mm -hmm. it's just a special committee that comes together. Could you advise us like how to find mm -hmm. those type of people? Like, yes, that's like, a great or who, question. Who do you want to have on that committee? That's a great question. You, you obviously want people who are financially savvy, mm -hmm. you know, people who have experience with investing either through their own portfolios or professionals. Yeah. So, you know, you might have some investment advisors on that committee. Um, or you might have a CPA or two, you know, some attorneys. Uh, you, you want people that understand markets, that understand money management and managers, you know, that, that aren't going to be intimidated by reading an investment policy statement and kind of understanding what the general rules are. Yeah. You, you don't need to go find somebody that's Warren Buffett. Yeah, sure. You know, sometimes sure. maybe people get intimidated by the idea of, oh, well, I've got to go find somebody who's an expert in this one thing. And it's, right. well, you know, start with getting people who are financially savvy enough to read the investment policy statement, understand it, and be able to hold the managers accountable. Right. So there's a little bit of that, like holding people accountable. Mm -hmm. they, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a characteristic within their personality, too, mm -hmm. that probably yeah. needs to be there, like that they're willing right. to... People that are willing to have honest conversations. Yeah, sure. And, and, and including accountability conversations. But at the same time, people that aren't hotheads. Wow. Because, um, well, when I was in Yale, uh, one of my professors was a retired endowment consultant. And he specialized in consulting with endowments of $100 million and up. Mm. And built a very successful career doing that. And he told us a story about how he was consulting with one endowment in particular. And he had all the metrics you know, set up for evaluating endowment managers. I mean, way more detail than most institutions would want to go into. Yeah. But he had it down to a science so that as soon as a manager started underperforming, he'd fire him and go and hire another manager, you know, to take his place. So he had this whole process for search and selection of managers. You know, only the guys with the best metrics would get hired and anybody that started slipping would get fired. Okay. Well, a few years in, the endowment fired him. Wow. And he's like, you know, why did I get fired? I'm, you know, at the top of my game. I've got all these metrics. And he started looking at it. He started looking at his history with that endowment. And what he was doing was he was too quick to pull the trigger. Hmm. He was firing endowment managers too soon. He was, he was essentially buying high and selling low. Hmm. You know, you, you fire the guy that slipped up just once, Yeah. you know, and which happens to be when his portfolio is lower. And you go and hire the guy that just had, you know, hot numbers, and right, you're you're right. you're investing in whatever he just had success with, so you're buying high. Yeah. And so so you don't want hotheads. You don't want people that are just going to fire somebody the first chance they get. But at the same time, you want people that aren't just uh, nice, go along, get along people that aren't going to ever make a decision. Yeah. Because it's very important for an institution to have a well-managed endowment. And honestly, especially after a year like 2022, there are a lot of poorly managed endowments out there where a change needs to be made. Mm. You know, where you might have had somebody that, you know, was a friend of one of the board members right. or something. Right, that's going to be a weakness. Too. That okay. got put on there. And honestly, their focus is not on nonprofits. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they just kind of help, you know, normal people out. And hey, that's great, you know. But maybe they don't have a lot of experience working with nonprofits and they didn't do a great job. Wow. And yeah. you need people that are willing to say, okay, you know, this person's been with us for a number of years. 
they're underperforming, we need to make a change. Mm. But at the same time, you don't want to be quick-tempered and firing somebody just, just the first time. You know, they're great, they're great, they're great, and then suddenly they start slipping. So you want somebody that's discerning enough to balance between the two. Gotcha. Yeah. So just thinking about where we are now, like in the, since 2020, you talk about that terrible yeah. bear market. Yeah. And then we come out of that, but yet we're still struggling. Now we have the <laughs> situations that are going on in, yeah. with Russia and Ukraine yeah. and these various places and um, administrations. So help us, like, yeah. I've tried to figure out where are we? Like, yeah. What's going on? And like, I, yeah. I honestly just get totally lost in it. And I'm just hopeful that right. when my retirement account comes back, there's a little bit of growth and not right. too much of a loss. Although, there's not been too much of that growth. <laughs> not side much growth the last year or two. No. Um, yeah, that's a great question. So we'll start with 2020, first quarter of 2020, fastest bear market in US history. I mean, it, you know, watching the market collapse, I mean, you know, on a day to day basis yeah, was incredible, sure. absolutely incredible. And, but it's like a disaster. It was a, yeah, yeah, it's like a na it was, natural disaster. It was like totally. a natural disaster that was significantly impacting markets hmm. and the federal reserve stepped in and in that and for for those that don't know the federal reserve is the central bank of the united states right and so the federal reserve steps in and essentially just started printing money like crazy to prop up the financial system and what they started doing was they were buying they were going out into the marketplace and buying securities so they were buying $120 billion a month of securities at the pace of $90 billion a month in U.S. Treasuries and about $30 billion a month in mortgages. They were pumping money into the mortgage mm. market. And so what that did was it, and they dropped rates to near zero. What that did was is it stopped the collapse. And, and of course, at around that same time, people start realizing, you know, COVID is dangerous, but it's not going to wipe out the population or anywhere close to, uh, you know, a substantial, you know, it's, it's not even going to be a majority. You know, they realized they started people, uh, the unknown is such a fear factor in the yes. market. And the, one, the more COVID became known, you know, people started getting more comfortable. Uh, but also the Fed is just dumping money into the market. And so it created this massive bull market right after the fastest bear market in right, US history. Sure. So 2020 actually turned out being a positive year for the market because wow, they just right. flipped it so fast. And then 21 was positive. But you got to, and, and all through, so through most of 2020, all through 21, the Federal Reserve is printing $120 billion a month and buying mortgages and U.S. treasuries with it and just, just flooding the market, flooding the system mm -hmm. with money. So money supply is going up. The number of dollars floating around in the system are going up and, and, a, and that creates inflation, right? You sure, know, sure, the, sure we are. The, when, when you have more and more of the same currency, then that currency gets a little less valuable. Sure. Uh, especially if money velocity, the speed at which that currency circles around the economy goes up as well. And, you know, over the last year or two, it, it actually has gone up. Mm. And so it had been declining for a while, but now it's actually going up. And so when you have an increase in money supply and an increase in money velocity, you get inflation. Mm. And so, and, and a great illustrator of this, because this is all kind of academic, a great illustrator of this is that the median, you know, the middle, U.S. home sales price at the end of 2022 was $467,000. Wow. 
half of the homes in the United States in the last quarter of last year, 467,000. We're selling for above $467,000. Wow. 10 years ago, it was a quarter million. Wow. 10 years ago, the median U.S. home price was and That's inflation. Is yes. That that's connected to inflation. That is, you know, you know now, now the headline inflation rate, uh, I, before popping on here, uh, I, I went and did the math real quick. The average CPI inflation rate on an annual basis over the last 10 years is around 2.5%. Wow. So not very high, but if you look at this really important asset class, homes, you have one, yeah, I sure. have one. They went from 250 to more than $467,000. What happened to the American dream, Andy? Hmm. I mean, how, how are families supposed to buy a house when half the homes in America are $467,000? No, that's right. People are dealing with that. And right so, now. so yes, yeah, so that is very inflationary, much more than the official numbers might tell you. And the Federal Reserve is very aware of that. And hmm. so that's why starting in 2022, the Federal Reserve started reversing all that they had done in response to the COVID pandemic. And so they started raising interest rates and they're still raising interest rates. And they've also started, not only have they stopped printing money, they've kicked it in reverse. They are pulling money out of the system. Hmm. So they went from buying $120 billion a month in assets to redeeming $95 billion a month in assets. Uh, they're, they're, they're pulling out of the system about $60 billion, up to $60 billion in treasuries and up to $35 billion a month and mortgages. And so what that's doing is it's shrinking the money supply. So rates are going up, money supply's getting smaller. It's a very gradual rate. It's not a big shift. Um, you know, year over year, the M2 money supply is only just now, you know, kind of in the fourth quarter of last year, just now started shrinking. But that is expressly for the purpose of fighting inflation. Okay. Because, you know, you can say what you want about oil prices. You can say what you want about price of eggs and, and price of yeah, sure. groceries. Yeah, sure. too, yeah. But like housing is strictly like that big cycle, that big bull run is strictly attrib attributable to the Fed. Hmm. You know, you, you can't blame Putin for that one. You, you can't blame the Middle East. You can't blame the avian flu like with eggs, you know. Yeah. You, you know, nope. Housing went from 250 to more than 450 in 10 years because we just printed too much money and flooded the mortgage market with wow. too much money. So yeah. is that, are our houses really that valuable? Like if you're That's a great question because, you know, at the same time, post 2008, home builders slowed down building homes. Right, exactly. Because yeah. a lot of home builders got wiped out in the 08 crisis. So you've got the millennial generation coming forwards and buying homes for the mm -hmm. first time. Right, sure. And so, you know, you have a lot of demand you know, picking up for homes. And so, you know, are homes worth $250,000 like they were two years ago? I highly doubt that. Mm. You know, but at the same time, the median U.S. home price to income ratio. Where, median U.S. home price to yes, income ratio. ratio how you, much your home costs yeah, versus how much you make. Yes. Okay. That number is at pre-2008 crisis levels. Okay. So, you know. so it's not a good place. So it's not a good place. So homes by that metric at gotcha. least are So, so that, that has grown, yeah, the has distinction grown. between those areas. Substantially grown. So mm. people's incomes aren't keeping up with the pace at which housing has gone. So the Fed is trying to fight that among other areas of inflation like 
you know, what we see at the grocery store. And that has significant implications to your investment portfolio. So if you're an endowment or a foundation and, and you're invested in mostly stocks and bonds, well, you're going to be in trouble when the Fed comes along and starts raising rates aggressively because a rising rate environment is not friendly to bonds because all those bonds that were issued at low interest rates suddenly aren't as valuable anymore. Hmm. You know, right now you can go, you know, a lot of money market funds right now, um, including brokerage money market funds, you know, will give you a 4% rate of return. Well, I've noticed that. I see that on signs. Yes. I yes. never do it. But so just, so why a, why do you want the bond that was issued a couple of years ago at half that? Right. So people are selling the old bonds, you know, to to buy, you know, to get the better stuff. And which which of course reduces the price of those bonds, which inherently actually increases the return you get if you buy one of those bonds at a lower price. You buy it at a discounted price and you get a, you know, nice return. And so it all evens out, but a rising rate environment is bad, generally bad for the bond market hmm. and and generally bad for the stock market. And so, well, what do you do? Well, one, you, again, you invest in non-correlated assets. So, well, you know, maybe instead of having a portfolio that's strictly allocated to stocks and bonds, maybe you work in some commodity exposure. I mean, gold didn't do too badly last year. It didn't really go up much, but it didn't go down much. What about oil, energy? You know, the energy sector did quite well last year. And so you want to diversify your portfolio to be exposed to certain asset classes that can do well even in a rising rate gotcha. inflationary environment. So you want to have a flexible investment policy that allows that. But you also want a money manager who is aware of those factors and isn't just going to sit there and say a 60-40 stock bond portfolio and just take it in the teeth. Yeah, sure. And just rot it through. You want someone who's going to be adaptive because here's the other thing, and I'm, not, I'm trying not to get too technical here, but all fixed income investments are not the same. So a lot of times people think about, oh, we're going to invest in bonds. That's safe. Well, in a rising rate environment, you know, the, the U.S. aggregate bond index, so an index of all the bonds traded in the U.S. Um, investment grade and treasuries, you know, it lost 13% last year. You know, so, so you know, bonds... That's not necessarily a guaranteed safe investment because, you know, the bond index went and lost 13% of its value in a year. So you need to know how to trade the bond market, which means you need to know how to trade up and down the yield curve. Do you want to buy long-term bonds or do you want to buy short-term bonds? Mm. If you buy long-term bonds, you have opportunity for capital gains. So if interest rates come down, you can make some real money there. Mm. But in a rising rate environment, you don't want to be there because those are selling off more than any of the others. You want to be on the short end and maybe the money market or cash end collecting those high money market rates and benefiting from rising rates and staying out of the long end of the bond, you know, yield curve. And so, you know, somebody that a money manager that might just park their bond portfolio in just a blended duration bond portfolio and just kind of forget about it for a year, you're, you're going to get smoked mm. and, and it's a bad situation. So you can trade the exact same asset allocation differently and in a way that is more beneficial to your institution. And so that's where you want somebody that's a little more educated on actively managing a portfolio. Interesting. And so that's that's where, you know, to any of your listeners who are, you know, CFOs or presidents who are looking at their endowments, you want your money managers to be active managers. I'm mm. not not day traders, not not people. Yeah, exactly. What type of people should we be yeah. seeking out to be our money yeah. manager? Like what what like right. we want people who are going to be thinking about 
like obviously reducing risk. Right. Right. I mean, that seems like an obvious thing. But at the same time, you just outlined to me, one of these mixed accounts would have sound sounded good. It's like, okay, great. It's just kind of mm-hmm. in a federal place, so I won't get hurt. Mm-hmm. But you're saying it needs more specific management. Right. Not just not just mixed between stocks, bonds, and even commodities, but also somebody that can trade within those asset classes well. So mm. Obviously, I would suggest myself, right. you know, Providence Capital Management, you know, let me come and talk to you. But but you, whether it's me or someone else, you want somebody who's going to be adaptive right. to what the market throws their way, who, who looks at the challenges that the market's throwing their way and tries to turn them into opportunities. Right. You know. And, it's, and, and there are, even in these type of strange situations, right opportunities. Absolutely. So like, I know you can't tell us what those opportunities are right now. If they do, <laughs> but they can find you, right? And, and absolutely. So tell us a little about where people can find out about you. And, sure. And, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, um, obviously there's my website, you know, providencecm.com. Yeah. And then there's my email address. If somebody wants to email me, they can I'd be happy to talk to them. And we'll have that in the show notes here, so you can just click on that too. Perfect. Yeah. Yes, Ethan at ProvidenceCM.com. Please click on that, and we'll be happy to talk. And and you know, I would say, you know, my ideal client, you know, a, a good because fit is so important. You know, between an investment advisor and a client. You know, when I was going through the Yale program, you know, most of the people graduating from there were, as far as those that were in the institutional space. We're going to be chasing after endowments of 100 million and more. Mm-hmm. You know, less of them we're going to be chasing after endowments of 25 million to 100 million. Mm. You know, and almost none of them were going after the sub 25 million dollar space. Okay. So you know, and hey, I mean, if somebody with a hundred million dollar endowment wants to talk to me, I'd be happy yeah. to talk to them. You could talk to me too. Yeah, yeah. I just like to talk to you. Yeah, just, yeah, just, just like to meet you. Yeah, but um. But uh, but honestly, I, I want to focus on the underserved space. Interesting. Of less than twenty five million, because I think that's where most of the good and most of the help can be done right now. Okay. Is helping those foundations and endowments with less than twenty five million dollars invest. So I would say anywhere between you know a quarter million to twenty five million is kind of my target range for institutional clients. Or any individuals that you know are in that range as well, but but I would say that's kind of the endowment and foundation range that, gotcha. that I'm aiming for, and that I think I can do the most good in. So when you have this, you know, you're 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 focusing this one very particular. And when you told me that number, I thought, well, that sounds a high. But thinking of it in light of what the market is, it's right. interesting. Now, your the name of your company is Providence. Yes. What's up with that? Providence Capital. Yeah, yeah, obviously, like you have something in mind. Yes. Like you're trying to tap into yes. an idea. Yes, yes. Theology. I yes. Um, it's, you know, the idea of provision. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's funny because, you know, Providence, I'm, I'm, I'm in a Wesleyan institution. You know, I work with you guys we every day. We still believe in it. <laughs> so, but we believe in it. Amen, and, yeah. And so, yes, yeah, so, so when I... When I started the firm, you know, the idea of, you know, we're here to provide for a better future. Mm, mm-hmm. We're we're here whether it's us as, you know, individuals and families or it's as institutions. You're we're here to provide for a better future for whatever God's calling us to provide for. And right. so, I want to help nonprofits and foundations provide better for their mission. Mm-hmm. And so so honestly the name of 
my business is also the mission. Amen. Of the awesome. So that's that's. And I love, love the good. word too because it also has a sense of, of a passive quality. Yes. Like providence. I mean, it, it's not in it you know, like etymologically or grammatically mm-hmm. necessarily that, but there's a sense that providence is something that happens outside of you. Yes. And and, and like this whole the nature of this conversation mm-hmm. is such that you come alongside people like me who don't think about these things. Like and and, and you're provide providing for mm-hmm. them, giving this. And and, and ultimately, like that's what we're looking to with what God provides for the world is that He, it's His providential hand that guides us. Okay, my last question is: Is uh, I ask people, my name of the podcast is more to the story. So I wonder, is there more to the story of Ethan than you normally tell? Then when you're talking about finances, (laughs) is it something you like to do? Or oh, that's a great question. I mean, I'm not a good golfer. I enjoy golf. Um, People often, you know, I love asking people. What books are you reading? Oh, interesting. Because that's a great insight, great window into their interests and yeah. to just who they are. And so I'm a history buff, you know, yeah, sure. as we talked about earlier in, in the podcast. And so right now I'm reading Winston Churchill's History of World War II. It's his firsthand account wow. of World War II. It's six volumes. I'm in volume number four right now. And and we're, we just got through the Casablanca conference and... And he's, you know, trying to balance right now between, you know, all the competing French factions who want to be the leaders of the free French and the Americans and and the British interests. And it's just, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, Churchill's history of World War II is, is a fascinating read. So I've enjoyed reading it. So oh, yeah, so, so for any history buffs out there, that's a good read. Oh, that's good. Well, Ethan, thanks so much for coming along. Appreciate having you. And, and also like helping people think about this. And it's interesting to see how God has led your story through law school, history major, to be able to help institutions at this level sense and lean into God's providence. Thank you so much, Andy. It's a pleasure being on here.